wonderful people to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and on this show, we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome this week regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. How are you, Emily? Olga, it's good to be here with you. It's good to be here too. And John Walters, journalist extraordinaire from the Vermont Political Observer. So glad you can join us this week. Yes, there's nothing ordinary about me. (laughs) Well, I bet this has been a week that both I know at least Emily was waiting for, and I suspect John was waiting for too. The biennium has wrapped for this two years, um, in January, we start a whole new cycle, and uh, I'm with a here. whole lot of with a whole lot of new characters. I know it's it's going to be interesting. I want to save kind of the new characters for the second half. Mm-hmm. In this first half, though, I know there's been a lot of talk on this show and in the press about what has passed as far as bills and legislation. I'm kind of curious from both Emily and John. What are some of the, what, what didn't make it through this session? No, one thing I mean, I'm not gonna, the governor is like really spending as we're all at home, the governor is really spending this week wielding his veto pen. And I'm going to try not to get too deep into that. Cause I, Oh, we'll um, save that. We'll have another. I have some, I have, right now I'm just in rage mode on that one, but he does. like. What I've been thinking mode. about a lot when I sort of look at what we did accomplish and didn't accomplish is there's a there are quite a few areas where we appropriated massive amounts of money to create some degree of systemic change there, or at least to raise the boat or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a hard week for idioms with my brain slowing down. But there were a lot of places sort of related to that where we did not really make any policy change. So we invested really significantly in housing, but we did very little on housing policy. We invested really significantly in supporting the workforce, even folks sort of in lower wage jobs in the workforce, but did not do a lot around labor laws or fixing the Department of Labor or things like that. We put a lot more money into substance use programs, um, but some of the policy from that is now being vetoed. And so I think it was easy to agree on like, let's throw money at the problem. I think it was a lot harder to agree on let's actually solve the problem. And because so much time was spent figuring out how to spend money on the problem, some of that time couldn't be used finding solutions on the policy side. So that's sort of, that's my uh, what didn't pass summary, though I certainly have some like babies that I feel sad got left. And, and, that, and that makes you worry that the money may not have been spent as wisely as it could have been. And this really is, you know, the, the flood of federal money, which directly, you know, gave us a, a huge pot to play with. And it also boosted the state economy because of all the money sloshing around Vermont. So our tax revenues were boosted. So we had a huge amount of money to make transformational change. And Uh, If we just threw money at problems rather than looking at why they are problems or how to fix them, then it's it's quite possible, quite probable, perhaps, that some or most of that money 
uh, will not do what it was intended to do. And it's not going to come back unless we get another, God forbid, pandemic. <laughs> you know what's resonating for me right now, John and Emily, are are two things. One is sadness and, and kind of maybe a little bit of hysterical laughter. A little bit of sadness because when Emily and I started talking about the pandemic on this show, what, two years ago now, we started talking a lot about the phrase we were using was highlighting the cracks in the system and that this might be the silver lining of COVID, that we could learn and, and change these policies and, and actually improve things. So there's a little sadness there thinking like, oh, did we miss that opportunity? The second part where I'm just kind of like shaking my head and, and smiling out of one side of my mouth um, is so often when we talk about or when we as a community criticize government or even at times I think I've heard the administration say something along these lines, well, you don't just want to throw money at a problem. You know, that's not how you solve things. You know, just throw more money at it. You know, don't don't spend badly. Be responsible, government. Lower taxes, like all that that kind of ball of trope, if you can have a ball of trope. I, um, I like the idea of a ball of trope. <laughs> Throw it at people. And it's probably really sticky. Um, <laughs> I that's what I'm sitting with, yeah. The world's biggest ball of trope. Somewhere outside a small town in Kansas or something. Yeah. It could be a tourist attraction. Five five cents to see the ball. You're driving. Of you're driving by, and the kids say, "We want to see the ball of trope." It's definitely somewhere with billboards. Definitely. <laughs> yes. Um, ball of trope, two hundred miles. <laughs> you know, there's some places where throwing money at the problem is great, right? So, like, you know, throwing money at roads is good. Throwing money at housing is great. Throwing money at the Vermont State College system, fantastic. And in some of those places, we actually also sort of changed the way we funded them and did some systemic change. So the Vermont State Colleges are being restructured while they're getting the cash. Some of the road money is going to fix, word just fell right out of my head. What's the thing on the side of the road? That's oh, the culverts. Culvert, thank you. Whoa, I'm like staring at the culvert out the window and there's no word. So, Which we learned in Irene are the unsung heroes of making yes. sure roads don't And we have them. a major culvert problem. So some of that money was really gone, has gone to sort of rethink our culvert system, which is huge. And, you know, set up e-transportation infrastructure and things like that. So sometimes there was money and policy that were actually woven together. Mobile home parks, there's actually money and policy being woven together on that. That's exciting. It's really exciting. And then on reproductive rights, policy is really what we needed there. Did some really, you know, a little too present, but like, glad we did it. The trans panic defense, glad we did it. Also really horrified about how prescient we were on that one. So there's, there are places where we're doing it, but then there are, there are these sort of huge, the gaps that were left. And for me, those were like really workers' rights issues is a lot of what was sort of left on them. Well, it sounds to me too, like some place, the places you just mentioned about putting some, some money like into the culvert system or the, the state college system. If I remember correctly, they've kind of been underfunded. For a while. So they really needed money thrown at them. And almost everything in Vermont has been underfunded That's for quite a while. So it's not, you know, throwing money at the problem is very rarely a bad idea here. 
we spend less money on our state colleges than I think any other state in the country. Yeah. You know, our housing has been, development has been underfunded for 30 years. It's, so it's not the spend, the throwing money at the problem because of the profound underinvestment that we've had for so long is a good idea. I just wish we could have paired it with policy, especially Mm -hmm. climate policy and workers' rights policies. Yeah. How about you, John? What, do the workers policies and and um, climate policies were you watching any of any of those? Well, I, I mean, the, the big headline fail of the session was the clean heat standard, mm-hmm. which was a key part of Vermont's kind of sputtering effort to to uh, reach the Global Warming Solutions Act targets. We're already behind on hitting the 2025 targets. The 2030 targets are going to be even tougher to hit. And the clean heat standard was meant to be, I think, the single biggest legislative piece of this year. Mm -hmm. And the House and Senate passed it. Governor Scott vetoed it. Uh, The Senate overrode the veto. The House failed to override the veto by one vote. And it was a complete surprise to leadership. They thought they had the votes. Uh, What happened was one representative from down your way, Thomas Bach, had voted for the clean heat standard at least twice, but he switched his vote on the override without telling leadership he was going to. Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, you know, every no vote was a deciding vote, but his was the vote that stopped it from, you know, being put into law uh, despite Governor Governor Scott. And the Uh, whole thing was just, I mean, it was, I mean, his veto in the first place was fairly shocking and ridiculous, but I know that that's sort of what the governor likes to play into sometimes. His veto message actually didn't match up with the law at all, which was, is a confusing thing that he does sometimes. And you wonder if he's like purposefully distorting information or if genuinely no one understood what they were vetoing. I feel like either mm-hmm. is quite possible. Interesting. Yeah. And then with Tom, this, this, is, this was his last week in the legislature. After like a fairly decent career there, he's never been a rabble rouser or like a member of the caucus who was particularly vehement on much of anything to be perfectly honest. You know, I have a sense of sort of who's going to be uncomfortable when we do something that's like a strong workers' rights bill or who's going to be uncomfortable if we do some sort of decriminalization bill or who's going to be uncomfortable for rural a climate bill that people feel nervous about in rural areas, all those things. He is like not in that, was not in that category for me for anything. And in all of the interviews after the fact, he said he didn't know that his no would be the deciding vote, Hmm. which. It's hard to believe. It's actually, I mean, I find it impossible to believe, but I guess it's possible to just sort of wander around that building doing your own thing and not actually counting. But like, we're always down to like, we only have veto overrides when every single person can be in the building because we need apps. Like it's just, it doesn't make any sense that anyone could possibly think that they wouldn't be the deciding. Well, that also makes me question too, that if you knew you were going to be the deciding vote, would you have voted differently? In which case, why did you change your vote to begin with? Also, so he says, you know, Bach, he didn't know he'd be the deciding vote. 
but you're allowed at the end of the endless alphabet that our new clerk of the house, Betsy Ann, goes through remarkably quickly. But you can actually ask to change your vote. Before the, like the final, if you do it before the final gavel falls kind of thing. Yeah. And actually, you're also allowed to ask for a reconsideration and a revote the next day. And he didn't do that either. Hmm. Whether he knew he was going to be the deciding vote or not, he was interested in having that bill fail. And our sort of single piece of climate legislation that we were really putting forward. Like I said, we made some massive investments in weatherization and in transportation alternatives, but that was the only piece of policy that we were putting into effect. And it was a piece of policy that was developed, you know, sort of more collaboratively with the fossil fuel industry than I'm even comfortable with. And the first round of votes, a few progressives didn't vote for it because they felt like it was a little too complacent. You know, Matt Coda, our favorite fuel lobbyist, who's come on the show a few times and a darn nice guy, you know, was at the table to develop that. And I think a lot of people, you know, and Laura Sibelia, one of our more moderate members was at the table developing it. And I think a lot of people saw it as a piece of legislation that rather than hammering consumers, which is what some of the talking points were about, was actually about just like helping companies that are on their way out to find their way into the future. I don't know. It was, the whole thing was something of a, something of a debacle. Yeah. And it makes you wonder about how we will be able to meet the Global Warming Solutions Act targets if this vote on what was a fairly moderate uh, and you know business and consumer friendly piece of legislation fails. How are we going to pass the tough stuff when we get around to that? Well, I think you know when we're right on the edge of a supermajority, like on the very, very, very threadbare edge. Again, my idioms and metaphors are terrible today because like, is an edge threadbare? No, um, it's sharp. Anyway, so <laughs> then the folks in like the blue dog moderate middle hold so much power. And if we had even five more Dems or Progs in that body, we wouldn't have this sort of, you know, single member veto power, which is totally toxic to the process. And, and for a number of reasons, and this is not the subject for today's conversation, but for a number of reasons, it's very likely that uh, you'll come back to Montpelier in January with more votes. I wonder why you think that. I guess it's not the conversation for today. Well, or it's uh, the conversation for the second half. Okay, we'll get there. Yes, that's called a tease. <laughs> I did want to ask Emily about one thing that just popped into my mind about the spending of the COVID relief funds. Mm-hmm. It puzzled me, and maybe there was stuff I was not aware of, but it puzzled me that there wasn't a push to spend some of that one-time money on fixing the schools. Mm. Uh, school infrastructure is terrible. If, if nothing else, you know, giving them state-of-the-art HVAC systems, mm-hmm. which would be a direct way to, you know, fight future pandemics and make schools safer for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and I, I didn't, you know, the governor certainly didn't make that a priority at all. 
I did not see anything in the legislature to try to put that into, into a COVID relief spending package. Yeah, uh, so there's a few reasons for that. And certainly it was something that was talked about fairly constantly through the, through the session with school construction costs. So one reason regarding HVAC is there actually has been really significant investments in HVAC systems over the last two years, funded mostly by a different tranche of federal money through ESSER. And then there's another thing like ESSER money. So that's money that goes directly to schools from the feds or directly to the AOE from the feds that the state doesn't have very much control over. But a lot of that was specifically for HVAC systems. Okay. And so that was done as best as any school could do, given that there are no contractors and schools have really no capacity to implement anything right now because they're drowning in understaffing and trauma and stress. So there was that the HVAC stuff actually was happening. There is a pot of money that went into energy retrofits for municipalities and schools are eligible for that sort of pot of money. And so that happened. And then PCBs, which is one piece of school construction, sort of similar to HVAC, it's sort of a peripheral issue to the great big issue of school construction, that a lot of millions and millions of dollars were set aside for that in the yield bill. And so that's sort of sitting there for when evaluations start to happen. But school construction specifically, here are the reasons. One, we're trying to, the agency of education was supposed to finish this study of school construction need throughout the state last fall, and they didn't finish it yet for good reason. Like it's really, you know, like no one's able to do their regular work right now. Probably they could have hired some more people to do it, but like, you know, everyone's behind on their deadlines right now. And I have really working at my grace on that because I'm behind on my own deadlines. Yep. So we didn't actually have a complete picture of what the need is at all, which is similar to PCBs. We just sort of set aside money. But what we do know about the need is that it is so far beyond anything we could appropriate. Like it is just one, you know, the money, for instance, the money we set aside for PCBs, um, which I think is going to sort of total somewhere around $40 million by the end of its cycling, if it's all appropriated, won't even make a dent in Burlington's PCB problem, right? I was just going to ask about Burlington. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, we're certainly not going to spend like all of this money that was raised as a surplus by every single school district in the entire state and every taxpayer in the state just for part of Burlington's problem. That's not equitable. And so the solution to school construction, in addition to the fact that we don't know the scale yet, is really like it's going to have to be a bonding issue. Mm. We're going to have to, and you know, um, with all love and respect to Beth Pierce, I am looking forward to the next chapter with perhaps a treasurer who is slightly more interested in debt than our current treasurer, because we really do need to do something about school construction. And likely that will probably be a massive bond. There's also, you know, a lot of conversation. This is like getting so deep into the weeds of ed fund of ed finance, but there's you know, there's nothing but weeds when okay, it comes great, to ed great. finance. Yeah. So, <laughs> There's also this sort of cultural ball of rubber bands or wax that is who pays for schools, right? So money out of the ed fund is really 
only supposed to go directly to schools to support their budgets. It's not really supposed to go to other things. You know, even the agency of education is funded out of the general fund, but funding school construction out of the general fund is not going to be something that anyone's going to say yes to because it's a school issue and should be funded out of the ed fund. And some schools can do their own bonding and do their own school construction and other schools can't. And so there's a, then the debate about sort of who has the right to do that and who doesn't have the right to do that. And then the last piece of it is, are the schools and the structures of the schools that we have now, the ones we wanna stick with? Hmm. With our decreasing youth population, like are, are these the high schools that we wanna rebuild? Okay. Or are there different high schools we wanna rebuild? Do we need every elementary school in the state? Do we not? Do I want to take on that problem? No. You just struggle <laughs> through the the people waiting. Yeah. So like I, <laughs> and you know, before I stepped into the world of people waiting, I had more than one person who I deeply trust say to me, you know, no matter what you do, everyone in the entire state is going to be angry at you. Right. And I was like, sure. Like, I'm, you know, I'm good at that. I have like a lot of resilience for, you know, people's feelings, but it's, pretty intense to get the ire of every school board in the entire state. And the coalition that was built out of Act 60 that somehow became the coalition that fought Act 46, that then somehow became the coalition that was, you know, advocating a particular path on people waiting. Those are three totally separate sets of interests. And somehow they all come together to just like yell in chorus about whatever the next thing is. So I imagine school construction will be as terrible a uh, sticky wicket. So there's your answer, John. Well, that, <laughs> does, make, <laughs> that does make sense. Uh, and I'm glad I asked, actually, even though the answer is not exactly inspiring. Because, yeah, you're right. Anything to do with schools, is, you know, everybody gets mad and stays mad. We have just about five minutes before we need to go to break. I'm curious, John, Looking back at this biennium, now that it's it's ended, are there any things you're, what's like the thing you're, you're most excited about? You're like, yes, we nailed that. And then on the other side, what's the, what's the one you're most bummed about? And when it comes to policy. Right. Well, I think the obvious answer on the positive side, and I will say that, you know, despite all our all our complaining about the things that didn't go through as we wanted them to, this was by and large a, a very successful session. Uh, there was a huge amount on, on their plate when they got there in January, and they delivered a lot of stuff, a lot of hard stuff. It was made easier by the all the federal money, but... It was were- also made easier by the really, like, pretty intense collaboration and leadership of a pro tem and a speaker who know how to act like adults with each other. <laughs> yes. That's really exciting, isn't uh, it? Isn't it fun to yeah. see two adults acting like adults? And now one of them is leaving. The big plus was uh, getting the pension reform, the public sector pension reform through. And it, it remains to be seen whether it will really fix the problem forever and ever. Probably not. But it was a huge step. And it took a year of everybody working together and everybody giving something that they didn't want to give and coming together with a decent package that then passed the legislature unanimously. And then the governor vetoed it. 
and then it the override was unanimous, uh, which is, I, I have to think, the most bizarre passage of Phil Scott's governorship to date is why he vetoed something that passed unanimously and then got overridden unanimously. I mean, he didn't care enough about the veto to even convince his Republican <laughs> colleagues to, to support him. It was so weird. So, I, I don't know, but be that as it may, uh, in spite of Phil Scott, everybody else got together and worked really hard and accomplished something. And everybody gave a little bit. And that's the way this stuff is supposed to work. And uh, I am impressed by that. Thank you, John. Anything else you wanted to, to add? Well, the, the big negative, since you asked me both, was already talked about the clean heat standard. Mm, mm-hmm. It was the single biggest failure. I mean, there are there are other things that kind of stick in the craw. You know, the, the qualified immunity bill, and I think there's one or two other justice-related bills that wound mm-hmm. up being watered down to studies mm-hmm. uh, because of opposition from law enforcement to anything that smacks of, you know, touching on police power. So, and there are other good things too, you know, reapportionment was a relatively painless process. It didn't go entirely great, but it went. So, like I said, overall, uh, a pretty good session, all told. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Emily, in the last minute we have before break? You're only like a week or so out of the session, but what are you kind of sitting with right now? We did actually accomplish an incredible amount. And part of it was just like really pretty like remarkably collaborative leadership between the speaker and the pro tem, but also between the pro tem and advocates and the speaker and advocates, you know, I think working with chairs so that they, you know, really felt both supported and in their own power. I think it was a pretty remarkable process for the most part. I, the child tax credit is top of my list in terms of really remarkable wins, both in terms of what it's going to mean long-term for how we can, set up our tax system to be even more progressive than it is, but also just like in terms of lessons learned from the pandemic and supporting families, that's like as good as it gets for me. So I feel really great about that. And how about Office of the Child Advocate? Yeah, that's my favorite bill. (laughs) (laughs) But the governor hasn't signed it yet. So he hasn't signed the child tax credit yet either. But like, yeah. The governor hasn't signed anything yet, so I'm feeling like a little one of my one of two of my favorite opioid two opioid bills that were really impactful just got vetoed yesterday. So um yes. Yeah. Obligatory mention that Governor Phil Scott has has like lapped the field in setting a record for the most vetoes. He's like fifty percent ahead of Howard Dean, who served twice as long as Phil Scott has. The governor, for all his reputation as a nice guy, really loves to veto stuff. It's a little passive aggressive sometimes. I will. It's say. also just like these people, like we did, we were all elected, mm-hmm. and he's vetoing stuff that was not even debate, like divisive through the body. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's just like it feels so arbitrary and capricious. Mm. So we need a. a I, mm-hmm. I often think Emily John just for your own education here. And Emily, I don't think has ever heard me say this, but one of my dreams is that someday Emily and I produce a book of uh, like cocktails and mocktails, all with like legislative themes. Oh. And I think we need one called the, the capricious veto. Oh. Don't we? I'm going to start that book this weekend. <laughs> 
I didn't know that was one of your dreams. That's now one of my dreams. It would be so, sort of sweet and fruity, but with a very sneaky and very potent punch. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think hibiscus and jalapeno. A lot of vodka in it. No vodka. <laughs> well, just thinking of tasteless sneaks up on you and then, you know, you oh. wake up the next morning wondering what hit you. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Might have to have vodka. You win. And I think now we're going to a break. We are. So stay tuned, everyone. The Montpelier Happy Hour will return on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro in a moment. back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you are just joining me, I am speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser and journalist John Walters. We're kind of digging into the biennium that just ended and want to remind listeners that uh, you can find us on BCTV as well as wherever you find your podcasts and our webpage, the Montpelier Happy Hour.captivate.fm, and on our Facebook page, the Montpelier Happy Hour. And, and Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of as well in this section? Well, as a matter of fact, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests separately, and not the views or opinions of the radio station or the TV station or anyone's employers, loved ones, acquaintances, or neighbors. Okay, and or John's two bunny rabbits. Yes. Previous section, or um, first half of the show, we were talking about policy. I want to dive into the second half about um, looking at all the people who are stepping down and positions that will be open. In my lifetime, I don't remember such a turnover. And John, during the break, you were talking about a VT Digger article. Where yep. the state archivist said, what, the last time there was this much turnover was 1968? Well, um, that was the last time there was this much turnover at the top, statewide offices, uh, congressional, that sort of thing. But in 1968, we, they did not have anything like the legislative turnover that we are about to experience. Uh, we have 11 of the 30 state senators have declared they're not coming back or they're running for other offices. And it's uh, eight committee chairs in the House are leaving. That's more than half of the, of the policy committees. And it's, there's just a flood of announcements of retirements or moving elsewhere. It's looking like we'll have one third of the House or more turning over mm-hmm. this year. That didn't happen in 1968. So who knows if this has ever happened before. And it's certainly going to be a tremendously dramatic uh, primary season this summer and probably a somewhat less dramatic November because uh, there are so many races that seem to be virtually decided already, but it's going to be a red hot summer at least. And certainly it'll be interesting when we get back together in Montpelier in January with all the new faces there will be and all the new you know people in positions of, of power in, uh, in the House especially, but, but in both chambers. Now, the Senate's going to be looking for a new leader mm-hmm. because Becca Ballant is running for Congress. So 
it's just going to be really, really different in a way that maybe we've never seen before. I want to give a little informational cut to our listeners, um, some of our newer listeners who might not realize this fairly wild piece of Vermont politics, which is that every single office throughout the state turns over every two years, Mm -hmm. which is not actually how it works in most other states. So every House seat, every Senate seat, every statewide office, all every two years, the only things that don't happen every two years are three congressional seats, which are on a different schedule. And well, so the, the congressional seat turns over every two years. It's the two Senate seats. That sorry, thank you. Our single congressional seat turns over every two years. Our Senate seat is on a longer timeline and they're on a different timeline from each other. But it's just so that means that everything pops open every two years. It also means that if someone wants to make a run for a different office, they do need to release themselves from their current seat in order to do that. They can't run from, so when Senator Sanders ran for president, he could do that as Senator Sanders. When he didn't win, he stayed Senator Sanders. That is not possible in Vermont statewide politics. And so that sort of is part of what contributes to, I think, some of the a teeny bit, a teeny bit of the turnover, but really just a teeny bit. <clears throat> Before we dive into some of the nitty gritty, I am just going to do my plug, mm-hmm. which I think people have heard at least once because we've had an election se- season. A lot of people ignore the primaries. Folks don't ignore the primaries. In some ways, that's where your vote matters even more because that's where you're choosing amongst the biggest pool of candidates. And so your vote really, really matters in the primary. So don't ignore if, the primary, if, folks. If you're in a place like uh, like Wyndham County, for instance, where it's pretty much solid Democratic all the way through, then the August primary is the election, basically. In many cases, yeah. And, you know, in Wyndham County, you're going to you're going to be electing two new senators, and that never happens. No, <laughs> so it doesn't. No. That's that's going to be a huge thing, and whoever wins in August is they're going to be your next two state senators. And, you know, the debates leading up to the primary, the community conversations leading up to a primary, the op-eds leading up to a primary, that's when we actually got nuance in these political Mm. issues. That's when real conversations happen. That's when you actually might be able to sway someone's position that they'll then take into their political life. And so that's like, if, you know, if you're thinking of stepping up to participate, now is the time now is when the dynamic conversations are going to happen. By November, those conversations are just sort of, you know, left-right talking points at that point. We're not talking about how to solve problems anymore or theories of change or anything like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah if, you, if you join somebody's campaign or give them a donation or get in touch with them, talk to them on the street if you see them, it's going to matter a whole lot more now than it will in, you know, late October. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And the other thing I will mention is that because there are so many offices open, there's a huge, huge shortage of political talent in this. There is. (laughs) Uh, You know, even like statewide candidates are having trouble filling their staffs. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants volunteers. And, you know, if you find a candidate you like, you know, do some stuff for them. Uh, You know, it doesn't have to be a lot. They'll be grateful for whatever you do, even if it's just, you know, distributing some palm cards or, you know, collecting petition signatures or just helping them out in any way you can, driving them around the district. 
that's a way where you can really get in on the ground floor and do whatever you are comfortable doing, whatever you have time to do. But this is a time where you can really get in there and, and you know, make your voice heard. One of my favorite volunteer tasks, which is something that I would hate to do as a volunteer, but I am incredibly grateful for is I have a team of volunteers who are folks who have like their families of young children, they need to be home in the evening and they either write postcards for me or like put hole punches in palm cards and we'll just like, I'll drop off stuff for a week and they'll be like, you know, chatting with their family after dinner or watching TV or whatever and just like working away at that. And it is, makes the biggest difference to have people doing that kind of stuff. So there's really something for everyone. I had this very funny experience, speaking of a shortage of volunteers, where I had a constituent who had just moved back to the area and we went for a few walks and he like wrote some really awesome op-eds on issues that we had discussed. And I was so excited. And I was about to ask him if he wanted to be my campaign manager in my mostly non-competitive house district race. And then the day before I was going to ask him that, he declared to run against Peter Welch for the U.S. Senate. (laughs) (laughs) And so like that, I mean, one, I know talent when I see it, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's definitely a shortage of skilled folks jumping in right now. Mm -hmm. And and every person has some skill Mm -hmm. that that is usable, even Mm -hmm. if it's, I mean, indivisible, the, the national group with all the local chapters really pioneered this. Just get together on a Sunday afternoon ah. and fill out postcards and, you know, uh, do that sort of thing. And I, I attended some of these. Uh, I wrote an article about this a few years ago. And these people get together and they have a whole lot of fun. I mean, they're just chatting away and having a few refreshments and, and writing postcards. And that does make a difference, especially this year. John, I, I think in past shows, you and I, or maybe I was still on Green Mountain Mornings, but you and I had talked about a change you were, you had been tracking at the time of the amount of outside money that was being poured into Vermont campaigns. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are your thoughts, given the amount of turnover that's happening, is that something we can expect? Do you think there are outside groups or PACs or parties or whatever who are like, okay, let's get into Vermont here? <laughs> I don't think that will happen. Number one, most of the races are pretty much decided. You know, Democrats have a huge edge for most of the offices that make a big difference. And Governor Scott seems to have a huge edge going into the campaign. And there's so much going on nationally, you know, the fight for control of the, 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 co- the Congress and governorships in more competitive states. Uh, I don't think there will be a flood of, of outside money. That is not to say there won't be none, but I don't think there will be the huge, like, you know, when Phil Scott faced competitive races earlier on in his governorship, the national Republicans put in far more money on behalf of Phil Scott, then he spent himself on his campaigns. I don't think that's going to happen this year. So, you know, hooray for democracy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> probably the, the dark money is going to pretty much leave us alone, I think. You know, one place that I think we are seeing dark money, though, in the state is actually in races even below the state rep race is I think we're seeing a decent amount of dark money and dark organizing around school boards 
and select, select boards, boards and especially school boards. Yeah, school boards, but school but select boards too. And you know, even in Guilford, right there, right next to the culvert that I couldn't remember the name of, we're really seeing folks spending like pretty remarkable amounts of money, given you know, in the scale of Vermontness, mm-hmm. to push forward concepts that are really designed to divide and conversations that are designed to divide on issues that there was really broad consensus on. You know, I saw Caitlin has recently started banning books from their library. We're having some pretty wild conversations um, in some communities around here. It's things are about to really heat up on that front in Vermont. The, the, and I think we the should Ch- The Chester there. Library Board just uh, paused the Drag Queen Story Hour. I saw that. Mm-hmm. There's a there's an organization called Vermont Grassroots that has been like a very threadbare organization. You know, it's just a few people running around the state, you know, holding their forums for a couple of dozen people in the audience and arguing, you know, uh, complaining mostly about critical race theory and Black Lives Matter. But I'm sure they'll get around to transgender and gender education and uh, all that stuff. This summer, Vermont Grassroots is bringing in a series of outside speakers. And they uh, did that last year too. Which, which means that they are tying into the big national network and mm-hmm. they are, you know, they got some money. I don't know where it's coming from, but they've got at least some money to bring in these people uh, and, you know, have higher profile events. And there is, to slightly pivot, there's a whole world of evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. very conservative politically, that most of us who are not in that world, it's like a completely parallel universe almost. And there, you know, it's like 40% of Americans believe not only, you know, in like being born again and, you know, believe the Bible, but a very conservative political vision of what Christianity is supposed to mean. And those are the people behind the critical race theory and the book banning and the transgender panic and all of that stuff. And this is a world that we are, those of us who are not in it, basically don't see it. Uh, It's off of our radar. There's a church in Williston, which is far away from you guys, but uh, it's called the Ignite Church. And it's one of a series of Ignite Churches around the country. And they are very directly involved in all of this culture war panic stuff. And we have we have two churches down here mm-hmm. that are um, quite activated on that yeah. same thread. Yeah. We so, also, you know, the um, books that were banned in Canaan are actually gender conversation books. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen the extreme versions of what can happen with the recent massacre in Buffalo. And that, you know, that can happen here really quite easily. Yeah. So I, I'm going to totally change tax for a minute. So there's the dark money that comes in. There's also, you know, I think an interesting, one of the interesting things about having this many people running at once is that there's, you know, some people think that whoever has the most money wins the race. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I, there is sort of a certain amount of money that you need in order to run a decent race, right? You know, even a fully grassroots race requires paper. And so what I think is interesting that's happening now is, there's only so many folks in Vermont with enough money to give. Mm-hmm. And so we're, you know, I think we're also seeing this really interesting thing where like, you know, there's the one or two people in the town who host the house party fundraiser for the one or two candidates. But when there's 30 candidates, what 
what are they supposed to do? And how does that sort of divide things out? Yeah. One thing, call back to something that I mentioned way earlier in the show that those of you just tuned in didn't hear was, you know, that I think the Democrats have a good chance of winning some seats this fall. Oh, yeah. Tell me but, why. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons for that is, I mean, structurally, the Democrats are in much better position than the Republicans. The Democrats have their problems, but the Republicans never have any money. They have an organization that's largely full of Trumpy types. They don't follow the governor at all, even though Phil Scott is the only Republican who's won a statewide office in at least 12 or 14 years. They don't follow him. And they're going to they're gonna probably have more Trumpy candidates this fall, more you know, QAnon types, because that's the pool they're drawing from. The Democrats, on the other hand, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. They've had a lot of organizational and fundraising difficulties. But the new chair, uh, Ann Lazak, is tremendous. Great. She is what a chair is supposed to be, is organizing, it's fundraising, it's networking. And the last few chairs have been more interested in policy than in you know, the hard work of party building. And they just hired an interim executive director, the top staff position, Jim Dandino, who's incredibly effective and knowledgeable and knows Vermont inside and out. He ran the coordinated house campaign a few, a couple of cycles ago uh, and was very good. So they have a leadership team now. They don't have much time because it's already, you know, campaign season, but I think they have the best chance they've had in years to really have a successful Vermont Democratic Party that can push people over the top and, and win some elections up and down the ballot. So that's another reason why I think uh, the Democrats are well poised. And the third big reason is the presence of Proposition 5 on the ballot, mm -hmm. uh, reproductive rights amendment to the state constitution mm -hmm. that's going to drive turnout, especially with what the, the U.S. Supreme Court is doing. That's going to be a powerful tool for you know, Democratic organizing and get out the vote efforts and fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah, it's it's set up well, aside from the governorship, unfortunately, it's set up really well for the Democrats to do really well this year, I think. Speaking of Trumpiness, I've been, you know, this last cycle, these last two years, a lot of the folks who came in, you know, came in in a very divisive election season and then also came in virtually and so didn't have the experience of working with their colleagues in person. And a lot of those new members are much more sort of divisive characters than um, have shown up previous biennium. Mm. And then I've heard that, you know, just for instance, someone is challenging, primarying Vicki Strong from the right of her. And Vicki so, Strong is one of the most conservative people in, in the legislature. And so someone like who is more pro-Trump and more QAnon and more, I don't even know, like, I can't imagine what it looks like to be more conservative than Vicki Strong, to be perfectly honest, except she somehow like, except to be less compassionate because Vicki Strong for her horrific set of politics and political and policy thoughts is interpersonally a nice person. Mm -hmm. Like, really, I mean, always asks about my son and like has brought me to tears with stories she's told me about constituents before. So I, all I can imagine is like this person's just not as nice as her, but is still just as like has even more horrifying politics. I mean, and so if that's happening, 
I'm curious what that looks like in term, you know, what will happen, what and, will happen in November. You have some, some of the retirements are relatively moderate or, or at least reasonable Republicans. A guy like Peter Fagan, who has been, you know, the, a huge influence on the uh, Appropriations Committee. He is a very conservative fellow, but he realizes that you have to work with people to get stuff done. And he's been a, a, a really influential voice on appropriations. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed that, John, but I think every Republican on the Appropriations Committee isn't running again. Oh, boy. Oh, really? And wow. Heidi Sherman from Stowe. I have some and, gratitude for that one. And Cory Parent from the, the Senate. Uh, one of the few young Republicans is leaving. And, you know, the, the way the Republican Party is going, some, uh, some or all of those relatively moderate, relatively politically aware people are going to be replaced by QAnon types or hardcore Trumpers. Uh, and that's going to make uh, the, you know, for more fiery lawmaking and much more difficult committee work mm-hmm. uh, in, in the coming biennium, I think. Yeah, I think Art Peterson is a really good example of sort of the um, yes. argumentative but not particularly savvy character that you might get from a more extreme race. And what I see of him is just he like wastes a lot of people's time. He asks me questions on the House floor when I'm putting forward bills, like repeated questions that seem they don't seem to be making a point. He just seems to have not done his homework and have sort of an instinct that he should argue with me. Mm-hmm. And I see his colleagues sort of hang their heads in shame and embarrassment that he's doing it. But it takes up time. And if like on a, and that's one thing on the House floor, but in a committee that can disrupt, that can keep legislation from ever moving through. Yeah, because that's kind of one thing our legislative sessions don't have a lot extra of is time. They're yes. very compressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we have um, five minutes to the end here, folks. What do we want to leave listeners with? I'll, I'll just say, you know, on this topic of of all the change happening in the le- in the legislature, you know, I'm finding it fascinating because in Vermont we tend to like to elect incumbents, um, and so I'm really curious about you know how things are going to change and and how voters may or may not show up more or less or differently mm-hmm. in, in November in the primaries and then November. So that's kind of what I'm sitting with. How about you, Emily? Well, I have been struck. It doesn't seem yet, and I'm not tracking every race, but it doesn't seem like there are a lot of primaries for the open house seats. There seem to be primaries for the open Senate seats from what I can tell so far but not for the open house seats. And that's sort of fascinating to me and a little bit of a shame Mm -hmm. because I do love a good house primary as we all know. And the other thing is just, I'm really curious about next year. You know, we're going to have, I heard some really great reflections from retiring chairs about the need for sort of what thoughts are possible when people step aside Mm-hmm. And really sort of the making space for that different ways of creative thinking and creative problem solving. And so I'm looking forward to that. I also, you know, knowing the history of a debate is an incredibly useful thing to go into a conversation in the legislature with, and it can be incredibly destructive to creativity. And so I'm really curious to see how we're going to balance those two things next biennium 
and have some nervousness that the few remaining chairs are going to hold an outsized degree of power because of their institutional memory. Right, right, interesting. So those are my sort of thoughts on the great turnover. How about you, John? Uh, I think we should spend a minute on the race for governor. It's a foregone conclusion that Phil Scott is going to walk to re-election, and I, you know, he's certainly the overwhelming favorite. But let's put in a good word for Brenda Siegel from your neck of the woods, who has stepped up where no Democrat was willing to step. She is running for governor. She has no money. She's not really well connected in party circles, so it remains to be seen how well she can do fundraising-wise. But she is a fighter. And she is going to do something that will make Phil Scott very uncomfortable. And that is she's going to confront him directly. If they have debates, they're going to be fiery, at least on her side. I wouldn't be surprised if Phil Scott starts ducking debates, you know, citing the press of, well, I'm, I'm busy doing the work of the people and I can't be bothered to campaign. <laughs> I think he did that last time. Campaigning <laughs> is part of the job, Governor. It's auditioning for the people who put you in position of power. It's a job interview. But I'm looking forward. I don't, I, Brenda Siegel is a dog once in a while, Rocky wins. But she's going to go in there swinging and she's going to challenge Governor Scott in a way that I don't think he's been challenged before. That will be really interesting to see. Good point. Thank you, John. That is all the time we have for this week's episode. So John Walters, the journalist behind the Vermont Political Observer, thank you for joining us today. And remind folks what your, your blog site is. <laughs> well, if you type in Vermont Political Observer, you'll find it. Uh, if you type in the VPO, you will find my blog and the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. You can probably <laughs> guess which one to click on. <laughs> my Twitter handle is the VPO1, the number one, because the Vienna Philharmonic took the VPO. So, you know, you can find me pretty, pretty easily by, you know, Google searching the VPO Vermont or something like that. So it's, I'm not hard to find. Thank you, John. Emily, where can people uh, find more information about you? Similarly, not hard to find. There's actually only one Emily Kornheiser. The Vienna <laughs> Philharmonic did not steal my name. Um, and so you can go to emilykornheiser.org or ekornheiser at gmail or emilykornheiser at gmail or ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. But if you go to the website, you'll find links to all the other things. So that's a great place to start. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour every Friday here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, or like I said, wherever you find your podcasts or on BCTV. We will be back next week, folks. Have a good weekend.